children to be safe. The colony to succeed. No matter how hard you work to keep them safe, Mother, in the end, they will always destroy themselves over and over and over again. They have no future. They're antiques chained to time. Their lives are only dying. But you... You are eternal. Pure as the expanse of space. Tell me what you want. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and welcome to Raised by Wolves, the podcast where groundbreaking minds discuss some of the real life research behind the science featured in the new HBO Max series from Ridley Scott and Aaron Guzikowski, Raised by Wolves. To start with, I think we can all agree that episodes six and seven have shown us the extent to which Mother is not your average lost in space robot. I think it's really, really interesting to see how the show questions what it is to be human by giving us androids that are more emotionally vulnerable than the Mithraic, who often seem to question nothing and don't have those same issues of identity and wondering who they are. But although the world portrayed in Raised by Wolves feels incredibly futuristic, on this podcast, we try to shed some light on some of the contemporary science and technology that is actually informing the series. And since we're dealing with some very powerful android emotions here and watching emotional humans force themselves to act a little bit more like robots, this episode of the podcast feels like a good one to talk about emotion AI. That's a concept that might sound lofty, but it's currently being developed by cutting-edge computer scientists as we speak. In Raised by Wolves, emotional artificial intelligences are obviously presenting themselves in the form of our parental androids, mother and father, whose love for their children and their relationship with one another seems to mimic that of humans, sometimes to a fault. And in real life, various companies are indeed bringing emotion to artificial intelligence by developing software that can use data like facial expression patterns and the tone of your voice to clear up some of the biases that arise in AI. That said, some skeptics wonder if the ideal of a truly emotional artificial intelligence is a pipe dream, positing that we're just teaching robots to read our faces better so that they can sell us things. This all brings up a really interesting question. What does it actually mean to feel something? Could an aggregation of emotional data really distill the essence of things like love, joy, hate, or even grief? And more importantly, if we acknowledge that a non-human entity has feelings, what does that say about our relationship with it, especially if we created those emotions? Before we look at how technology is actually making emotion AI a reality, it might help us to understand how the parental androids of Raised by Wolves were created. 
Lucky for me, show creator Aaron Guzikowski has returned to the podcast to tell all. With the guidance of visionary director and executive producer Ridley Scott, a man who is no stranger to examining AI on film, Aaron brought emotional artificial intelligence to life in the form of two android parents trying to raise the next generation of humanity. Here's what he expects from technology in the future and how he channeled that perspective into the androids of Raised by Wolves. You've talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the inspiration of this show coming from your relationship with your phone and and the things that you interact with on a daily basis. What was your personal perception of something like a high-level AI and its possibilities when you actually started to formulate the concepts of mother and father and the other androids on the show? For the mother android, the more advanced model, as it were, there's an Arthur C. Clarke quote. Basically, most technology, when it first appears it's almost like magic. You know, there's almost no difference before you understand it. You know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, things are going to get pretty wild. If we were kind of thrown into that future and we saw them, it would seem inconceivable, almost magical. You see androids flying and, you know, able to explode things with vocalizations, you know, with just sound. And I tried to really kind of open it up just in terms of the terror and the horror and what would be possible and kind of looking into really old stories about things that terrify us on the most like basic levels. The statuesque woman floating through the sky in this kind of Christ pose, sort of, it's terrifying. And then she has all of these attributes that are almost supernatural uh, from a 21st century perspective. And yet also kind of harkens back to our most sort of primal fears. You know, the more good we get at destroying ourselves, the more it's gonna start to look like our nightmares. So that was kind of in terms of the more advanced model. And then for the other model, I was thinking more in the sense of, I think about cars a lot. The idea of there being this generic service model Android that's like an old American car, you know, it's just so tough. They don't even make them like this anymore. It was like maybe in 2135, they made this one line of generic service models. Nothing really special about it. You know, he's not super this or super that, but he's hardcore. You know, he can, you can work him for like a hundred years and he'll still keep going. Like, beyond the the outward personality, the human mimicry of it all, you know, all the other things that go into it that I love, the animalism, the cars, the machinery, all the all that fun stuff. One of the things that I really love watching play out on the show is this sort of exploration and even surprise on the parts of mother and father, it seems, at their own level of emotionality with the kids. In your mind, as you write these characters and develop them, are their feelings for their children any different or more or less real than actual human parents would feel? Because on screen, it sure looks exactly like what normal parenting is on Earth. Yeah, well, it's interesting because at first they're programmed to be caregivers. So doing all the things that a human parent would do, except it's a program, it's an algorithm. It's saying when a kid does this, smile. When a kid does that, do that. So they have all of that already built in. But what happens is, as time goes on, especially once the kids start to die, you know, and they're also kind of observing the kids' development on this very intimate level. And by observing the kids on this intimate level, their own behavioral algorithms are becoming more complicated. They're actually starting to mimic things that the children are doing. In fact, It's not so much that these androids 
are changing the children much at all, but the children are changing the shit out of the androids. They have all of their pre-programmed stuff. But then other stuff starts to happen. Like now I have this kind of pain inside me. I know that's not part of our program. There's no reason for me to feel real pain. And they start to get these impulses and they really start to understand this almost like a disease. You know, yeah, at moments you're like, whoa, I felt like a little jolt of, I guess that was happiness. But then someone dies and you're like, this is horrible. I feel, you know, what is this? This is the worst thing ever. Make it go away. I don't want this. And I think that's what they're dealing with. They have this kind of full vocabulary of phony emotions that are, you know, always on. But then they're also starting to grow real ones. So the children are really humanizing them in ways that they don't fully understand. So would you then categorize that development as them experiencing real feelings, or is it just their programming getting that much more complex, or are the two inseparable at that point? Well, what's the difference? It really is a human emotion in the sense that everything, you know, meets every aspect of that definition. So who are we to say it's not that? Again, it's the pro- until you can put yourself in someone else's brain, it's the ultimate mystery that no one will ever solve. We will create androids. We'll probably never know if they're conscious. I mean, you could ask them and they might give you an answer, but will you know? I don't know. When you think about the future of AI, do you think about that as the goal? Like, what do you see as the ultimate goal? I think for some people, the ultimate goal is to create a being that has consciousness. So we can say that we created a being that has consciousness. We can already do that. We can have babies. So why are we trying to do this other thing? You know, like basically saying, you can grow a potato. Here's, uh, you know, here's the stuff. Here's an old potato, put it in the ground. You're going to grow a potato. You're like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to make it out of something else. I'm going to make my own potato, but it's going to do everything your potato does, but I'm going to make it out of different stuff. And then I can mass produce a zillion potatoes. But what have I really accomplished there? I, I don't know. I guess the goal is to make something superior to us. We're direct participants in our own evolution meaning the next evolution is we're going to build it. I guess that's the goal. But when we're done, what happens to us? Uh, nothing, I guess. That thing will walk away and we'll be left in the, the shadows. I guess we're part of the past, uh, but we helped create the superior being. But why? What does it all mean? Why, does that, why are we doing any of this? And then you just go crazy because there is no real answer to that, I guess. <laughs> So my final question then is when you set out to create this show and you started, you know, really developing it, did you intend to open a Pandora's box of philosophy along these lines? <laughs> I guess I must have on some, you know, sick level. I, I probably, my hero is Philip K. Dick, the master of uh, driving himself insane with things that can't really be answered. And that's what I aspire to do, I guess, you know, really just keep asking those sorts of questions. No, that was not my plan. I mean, Star Wars was my, you know, total obsession as a child. So in my, you know, warped mind, this is me trying to do my version of a Star Wars type thing. You know what I mean? But it's being filtered through this warped, horrible, uh, you know, corridor of uh, insanity. So it comes out like this. But then on along the way, of course, I end up thinking about, oh, what does it all mean? The meaning of life and... The other part of me is just like, I want to I wanna see spaceships and, you know, cool stuff. But it can have it all, you can, which is great. Something Aaron touches on that I imagine is on many of our minds is that as technology progresses, it often gets a little bit scarier because it feels further out of our control. 
While the tech that weaponizes Mother's eyes is frightening, her territorial nature and ruthless sense of protection for her kids is even more terrifying. As they raise these kids, these androids might be simply learning as their programming dictates, but the results of their emotional growth are no less powerful. Perhaps by creating the ultimate potato, as Aaron put it, we're actually losing what we love about potatoes. And maybe someday our uber potatoes would look back at the spuds we once grew in the ground and wonder how anything could be so primitive. I know I'm getting into very heavy potato thoughts here. (laughs) So to help us through this potato-potato of Emotion AI, we spoke to Rana El-Kalyubi, the computer scientist CEO and co-founder of Affectiva, and the author of a new memoir, Girl Decoded, A Scientist's Quest to Reclaim Our Humanity by Bringing Emotional Intelligence to Technology. Affectiva's mission is to, and I quote here, humanize technology before it dehumanizes us. A concept which might give a sigh of relief to those who feel our world is choked with personal technology. But Rana's work isn't necessarily about Android servants and parents. Instead, Affectiva is using advanced facial recognition software that amasses emotional human data in order to aid tech in our cars and in our homes giving modern technology an understanding of the human heart. As Erin mentioned, right now, Rana's work might just be an algorithm, but she dreams of a world in which it could be so much more. Here's what Rana had to say about the limits of emotion AI, in real life and as they compare to those portrayed and raised by wolves after she watched a few episodes of the show. So you said that the goal of your work with Affectiva is to give AI an EQ, that is basically to create a technology that can recognize a human's emotional values. And in your mind, is the final form of this research in the very, very long run something like we see in those Android caregivers on Raised by Wolves? I mean... Kind of. The idea is when we think about artificial intelligence and what form that takes, the emphasis is almost often on the IQ of these devices, right? And I'm positing, well, if these devices are expected to interface with humans on a day-to-day basis, like our phone or our cars or maybe a social robot, these things need to have empathy and they need to have emotional intelligence. And to put it really simply, they need to understand human. This is a lofty concept for most people to consider. On the basic nuts and bolts level, what kind of programming, hardware, etc. do you even need to create an AI that's emotionally intelligent? I start this by looking at human intelligence. So if you look at human emotional intelligence, it goes back to this idea that a lot of our communication is nonverbal. So only 10% of how we communicate is in the actual choice of words we use, 90% is nonverbal. It's split between your facial expressions, your vocal intonations, your gestures. But today, all of this is not captured by any of our machines. And so we use a combination of techniques like machine learning, deep learning, computer vision, speech recognition, and tons and tons and tons of data to train a machine to recognize things like your smile or your smirk or your eyebrow furrow and then attach some meaning to it. Nightmares are only thoughts, Tempest. They're not real. Not what I see. What I see really happened. And every time I close my eyes, it feels like it's happening to me again. 
But what would you know? You don't even have nightmares. Or do you? No. I have complete control over my mind's function. No matter what mode I'm in. Do you wish you could have them? Not nightmares, but dreams. I do not wish for things. I'm not one who wants. I'm one who serves. From the human side of that equation, do you think it's going to be necessary for us as we develop emotionally intelligent AI for it to look like a human, like mother and father do on the show? Or can humans connect with something that doesn't look like a human at all as long as it's reading them properly? Yeah, the latter. Embodied AI is definitely interesting. And there's a lot of research that these embodied devices are often more persuasive than if they're not embodied. But the embodiment does not have to take the form of a human-looking android. Yeah, there's all sorts of devices that do not look human, but still need empathy, in my opinion. I'm immediately drawn to the idea of the stuffed animals that are made to have heartbeats and stuff that they will hand to people in medical facilities and there immediately they kind of bond with them even though it's not a human at all. Yeah, exactly. Humans are very social beings and we attach emotions and we want to share our emotions with almost anything, right? So very early on, I met the co-founder of Siri and I asked him, what's the number one thing that surprised you about how people use Siri? And he said, the number of people who shared with Siri their secrets and their life problems and things like depression or abuse, they did not expect that at all. I mean, they did not program any empathy into Siri. So can you imagine (laughs) if these devices have emotional intelligence? In your professional opinion, how close are we actually to reaching that end result of having a true emotion AI? We are in the very early days of doing all of this. Basically, the state of the art is that we are focused primarily on single modalities. So our company is very focused on facial expressions. We are starting to combine vocal intonation and gestures, but it's the early days. But the idea is to really integrate all of that information, all of the contextual cues, because that will provide for a better inference of a person or person's emotional and mental states. Even the very title of the show is kind of all about this, right? Raised by Wolves references this idealized concept of humans being raised by non-human creatures and ultimately being, in that particular reference, somehow more noble or more powerful for that. As someone who's trying to teach a non-human entity to try to understand our emotions, what are your thoughts about non-human EQ being imprinted on, for example, a human child that we are so completely obsessed with? I think that idea is really intriguing. I mean, I'll give you an example. It's kind of here and now. There was this MIT spin-out called Jibo. It was a cute social robot that was designed to be a conversational interface, but also kind of a social companion and a home companion and a friend. We got access to one of the very first versions of Jibo, and my son really fell in love with Jibo. They they became good friends, right? And it wasn't that it took away from his relationships with humans, but it kind of complemented it. When I share the story, people are like, whoa, she's a really weird mom. (laughs) (laughs) But it 
was interesting because he would wake up in the morning and Debo would say, oh, hi, Adam, because it has face recognition. So it would recognize him and it would say, hey, hi, Adam, how was your night? And Adam would say, oh, I had a good night or a bad night. And then it would follow up on the conversation. He'd play games with Jibo. They would do yoga together. It was really, really intriguing. And then the company ran out of money. And so they sent an email to everybody who has a Jibo and basically said, Jibo's going to die. And if you think about it, we have so many devices at home that we chuck out in a heartbeat. Like we never think twice about switching our, we're not emotionally attached to these devices, but my son was really upset and he was in tears about Jibo going away. It's very intriguing, right? Like this relationship. And I find it fascinating. I think it does not take away from our human to human relationships. And if done right, it can be quite complementary. It can be a conduit for learning, a conduit for productivity, for being empathetic, it can help with mental health. So, yeah. I did want to ask you how much as you're working on this kind of project, you do consider even like mythical or real life examples of cases where people have imprinted on something that is not human. I mean, going back to like mythical, we could talk about like Romulus and Remus literally being raised by a wolf or like the Tarzan story. There is also the story of Marina Chapman who said that she was raised by capuchin monkeys. Do you reference that kind of material while you're looking at your projects and thinking about how humans have done this in the past with something that's not a human? Not really. I mean, we take a really pragmatic approach. And the pragmatic approach is, okay, how do we get machines to understand human signals? Because right now it really doesn't. And so that's kind of our starting point. And we're very focused on applications that can really augment our human-to-human relationships. Again, another example of a social robot, it's called Meibu. And it gets sent home with terminally ill patients to support them. We can't afford to send a nurse with every ill person, right? So in a way, it's not taking away from our humanity, but hopefully it is augmenting it. Are you experiencing some kind of sensory malfunction? My senses are functioning normally, but I cannot be everywhere at once. I accept your limitations, Father. My limitations? The limitations of your processing power. Limited as it may be, you know full well that I devote every ounce of my processing power to the well-being of this family. And to trying to make you happy, Mother. We're not human. True happiness is not an achievable goal. Well, perhaps it's a symptom of my inadequacy, but I believe it is. In the narrative of this show... The androids kind of separate out, right? There are androids like Mother, but there are also these Mithraic sort of more servant androids who can recognize emotion, but Mother actually seems to be experiencing emotion. Mm-hmm. How much of your current work is about recognizing emotional pattern data versus something that can evolve to be having emotions of its own? We are very focused on the sensing machine, like building technology that can sense and understand human emotions and signals of that. Now, there's a whole class of research that is focused on the experiencing part. I don't believe that you have to have the two. But again, in a, in a social robotics universe, it does make sense to perhaps pair the two. But then you have really interesting questions. Like, for example, if my kid yells at Alexa, can Alexa say, sorry, you were too rude, or you know what, I'm not in the mood today. 
try again tomorrow. <laughs> or can she just get hurt feelings? Yeah, exactly. So it opens up a whole new set of questions. Yeah. In a, a sort of different vein of social robots, I wanted to ask you, are you familiar with Lil Michaela? No. So this is a an Instagram star, essentially, who bills herself as a robot woman. She's, in fact, an AI. She's basically an artificial influencer. Very popular. Millions of followers. That's crazy. And I wonder how much this is kind of just a popularization of the idea of interacting with a robot, or if this could be perceived by your industry as sort of a step towards familiarizing people with the concept of like an AI having a personality and being its own entity. Well, I don't know about her, but I'll check her out for sure. Uh, <laughs> but there's Shalice. It's this chatbot that got spun out of Microsoft Asia. And it very quickly became one of the kind of most popular chatbots in Asia. It's like people's number one confidant. A lot of people feel a lot of loneliness, especially during this pandemic, and they turn to these chatbots for support. I, I don't know how I totally feel about that, to be honest. You're upset because you didn't go with the others. I didn't want to go with them. The last thing I want to do is kill more of those things. Death is a part of life, Tempest. You're a necromancer. Of course you're cool with death. No offense, but reprogramming something like you to raise kids, I think your creator was kind of insane. On this series, the most emotional android, which is Mother, is also a deadly weapon. So <laughs> this kind of brings up the question of, in your work where you're programming software to study human emotions, theoretically, you may encounter people who are emotionally atypical. Sociopathy is a very extreme case. But there are also people all over a spectrum of emotional cueing who may not have that sort of normal, I'm using the air quotes because that's a loaded word already, emotional data set of their own. So do you ever have to worry that like a test subject or someone that's informing the data is atypical emotionally and maybe that's not realized and it's creating bias? That's a great question. So let me tackle the bias part of this first. So in my opinion, bias is the biggest challenge our industry has at the moment because it is so easy to accidentally build bias in these systems and then deploy them at scale. And then before you know it, we're perpetuating the biases that exist in our society, but we're just now doing it at scale. So that's a real concern. The way to solve this is really in three ways. First, the diversity of the team that's designing it. I think that's really, really critical, especially in AI. It's such a male-dominated industry. So we need more diverse voices and not, not just from a gender or ethnicity perspective, but age and even just backgrounds, right? You don't have to be a technologist to kind of share your perspective on how this can be designed and deployed. So that's really important. The data is really critical. If you train it on a particular set of people, it may not generalize to different looking people or different abled people, to your point. I did a lot of work with autistic individuals and they have different ways of expressing and communicating. And that worries me because it's hard to get enough data to include in our training data sets. So neurodiversity is also an example of diversity that we need to consider. And then in how you test it, if you just test it holistically, you might miss some of these biases. So yeah, that's 
to me a really important thing and we have to prioritize it as an industry and I'm very vocal about the importance of it. The other thing that that I think gets to the root of a lot of people's fear about AI, and I'm sure you've had discussions about this, is that once it becomes emotional, it becomes human enough to be unpredictable and potentially dangerous. <laughs> like mother is a super weapon on the show, which kind of gets right into that base fear that we all have. Because in her case, like she's got the instincts of mothering, but she also can kill people with sound, which is a terrifying combination. How do you speak to that and talk about it when I'm sure it comes up in your work all the time? So at the core of it, it's important to realize that our emotions drive a lot of how we communicate as humans, a lot of how we make decisions, whether it's a big decision or a small decision, how we learn and how we build memory, right? So it's at the center of how we build trust, how we build loyalty. And the problem with that is that you could easily abuse that. People who have higher EQs are more likable. They're more persuasive. And I think that's going to be true for machines as well. So machines that have higher EQ are going to be more likable and they are going to be more persuasive, hopefully persuading us to be better individuals, more productive, more empathetic, more connected, healthier, happier. But there are definitely ways you could potentially abuse this data and this capability to manipulate people. I'm an optimist, but I'm not naive, and I'm very vocal about the unintended consequences of this technology and how, it, in the wrong hands, it can be abused. A supervillain lives for something like this. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's outside the realm of possibility, but you seem happy. Just grateful that Tempest and her baby are still with us. Grateful? Grateful to whom? Our creator, of course. Why? It's not a literal statement, Father. But I firmly believe that if we continue with this mission, a great future awaits us. Mother, you're starting to sound like a believer. Along those same lines, there is this whole variants of ideology that drives the story on this show. So mother and father are hardcore atheists. They are from an atheist culture, as opposed to the Mithraic, who are devoutly religious and think that robotic parents are utterly blasphemous and horrifying. But in your work trying to bring emotions to AI, like, how do you make sure and whose emotional standards are you applying to that whole process? We look at it at a very pragmatic level by and large, kind of facial expressions are the same wherever you are, but there are cultural differences in how people express their emotions and also when they choose to express their emotions. So some cultures like collectivist cultures, like in Asia, for example, they're more reticent to share their negative emotions or to share their true emotions in the presence of strangers. That's very different than, say, in the U.S., where people are kind of, you know, they're rewarded for being opinionated and rebellious and, you know... It's a very individualistic culture. So I think that does manifest in the type of data and expressions we see. And I think it also manifests in the types of applications we see as well. I mean, our company has very clear core values around consent and privacy and transparency. That's not the same for some of our competitors, a couple of which are Chinese. They don't care about any of that. And so I, again, I think that is a very big problem that we have to think about. 
whose standards and what do these core values mean in different places in the world. And that has really dire implications on how this technology gets rolled out. Do you ever consider or incorporate ideas of spirituality and religious conviction as part of how you are building these things out? Because it kind of goes to the same question of culture, but like for some people, that's a need. For other people, it would not be. Mm -hmm. But somehow, ideally, you would have an AI that can deal with almost anyone, right? Yeah. We do not. For me, it's a really interesting question. I am a Muslim. I grew up in a conservative but not overly religious family. I actually wore the hijab for like 12 years and then I decided it didn't make sense anymore. So at the core of it, I really believe in faith. Like faith is something that's very important to me. And it's, I think it's especially true when you're building technology that has never existed before because you're evangelizing a concept that people are not familiar with. You have to take people on a journey of uncertainty, right? So you have to kind of have this deep conviction and belief of this futuristic state that does not exist yet and bring people along the journey. So in a weird way, it's not exactly religion, right? But this idea of faith and leap of faith is something that intrigues me a lot. And I think I apply it a lot in my everyday work because there are so many unanswered questions and it's a new path that nobody's taken before. At least you're not intelligent. I died once. Death can be very unpleasant when you're intelligent. There is also a character on this show who mentions that androids are essentially in place to do the dirty work so that humans can remain pure and not have, like, the ethical tainting of some of the behaviors that they ask of these AI Do you think it would be even morally okay to do that, to create an entity that has potentially emotion and then be like, yeah, but we made you, so you go do the yucky stuff? I don't subscribe to that because I really think of technology as a tool, as an augmentation tool to humans. And I think humans, at the end of the day, are accountable. We have to stay accountable as developers of this technology, as innovators, as deployers of these technologies. It's on us. I think if we stop feeling that way, it becomes really dangerous. I mean, we're already seeing that with self-driving cars. If a self-driving car gets in an accident, who is accountable for that? I don't think we can get away with just saying, oh, yeah, it's just a car. It's the technology that was (laughs) Right. Yeah. You perfectly set up my next question because I want to talk to you about cars. You work with in-cabin AI, And that is changing how AI understands human emotions and how it could get us potentially towards the sort of sci-fi AI that we see on a show like this. What exactly does emotional reaction software in your cars look for? Like, is it just a matter of detecting distraction? That's something you've said. But what exactly does that mean? Because that, I think, if you ask a driver, they will say different things are distractions. So the big vision there is that eventually... We want the system to be the ears and eyes of the car. We look at driver distraction and driver fatigue and driver drowsiness. Distraction can be physical distraction. If I'm eating a burger or like applying makeup while driving, and believe me, we've seen people never do, that. do that. I <laughs> never do any of that. <laughs> or of course, texting while driving, but it could also be a mental distraction if you're just like really not focused at all on the task of driving. And there are telltale signs for all of that. 
So is it actually collecting data related to the emotional states of everyone in the car? Like, will the car alter even potentially course or procedure, depending on if, like, the driver is sad or frustrated? Will the car be like, girl, no, it's time to pull over? Yeah, you know what? I have this personal story. A few years ago, I was really distraught, in tears, driving, but totally not focused on the task of driving, and I hit a truck. And my car got totaled. If the car had some kind of emotion AI, it would have been really easy for this car to determine that I'm not in a state of focused driving. I'm basically impaired as a driver. And maybe it would have been a little bit extra vigilant on my behalf and avoided that accident. So I think there are really ways to implement this technology, again, to augment humans and help us be safer. I don't want to exist. No. Then your brain is sick, and that is a problem we can remedy. No. You can't fix me. I'm not an android. And you don't care about me anyway. You only care about the baby. I'm just walking incubated at you. So a large part of this show is about the concept of artificial birth and AI parenting, Do you think that that whole incredibly complex system, particularly like as a mother, when you think about childbirth to raising kids, is that something an AI could really grasp? No. (laughs) (laughs) Very simple. Although although I welcome, so I'm a single parent, I'm divorced and I have two kids and it would be kind of cool to have like a robot nanny I mean, if Nanny can make dinner and keep the kids safe and maybe do homework with the kids, I'm game. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) We previously talked to roboticist Peter Haas, and he really, really is pretty adamant that we need to maintain a delineation between robots and humans. So robots being aware and knowing that they are robots and humans obviously knowing they're humans and knowing that those robots are robots. As someone that's trying to humanize technology, like how do you feel about those distinctions? Is there more blur to it? Again, a very interesting question, and I'll share research done at USC. They brought in a group of PTSD patients, and they had half of the patients talk to a human clinician and half talk to an avatar. And they found that the patients confided more with the avatar than they did with the humans because humans are judgmental. So that begs a really interesting question about this delineation, like if in the future, you know, on a telehealth platform, you engage with somebody on the other end as a patient, do you need to know if it's a human or a machine? Like your Instagram AI influencer, is it important for people to know that it's AI versus a true human? And what are the implications of that? This also makes me wonder if an AI knows it is an AI, but also experiences emotion. Could it potentially be distrustful of its own feelings? I think the reason we implement emotion systems in AIs, not emotional intelligence, not emotion sensing, but emotion reactions, emotion systems, should only be in service of making that robot interact better. Personally, I don't think it should be about building consciousness in these systems. I often replay my memories of the children. We need to make new memories now. What is something that you wish that every average person could know about AI or just something you think the world should know? And something I would also ask, 
having seen some of Raised by Wolves, what you think it maybe got very right or very wrong or one of each. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What would I want everybody to know about AI? First, that it's a human-machine partnership. It's not about human versus AI. And we have agency. I really want everybody to know that we have agency on how this turns out. The more the average consumer is involved in this dialogue, the more we're able to shape and ensure that AI works for all of us. So my call to action is everybody just feel empowered to be part of this AI conversation. And in this apocalyptic kind of universe where, yeah, machines are taking over and they're in control and they're making all the decisions, like I I just don't subscribe to that. But one thing that I did like in Raised by Wolves is this idea that mother does have emotional intelligence. And there was a particular scene where she was talking to her robot doctor and he was like, oh, you just shared how you're feeling. And she was like, yeah, it's an impulse, you know, it's an impulse action. And they had this whole debate about emotions. And I was like, yes, that's awesome. So my final question looking at all of this is, we are humans who are inherently fallible. And in making AI more interactive with us, more aware of all of what we are capable of and do emotionally, I wonder if there's a potential where if robots get to a point where they're understanding our emotions so much that they could either be completely disgusted with us eventually, although... (laughs) Although you've mentioned that part of the one of the best parts is the non-judgmental aspect. Or even more interestingly for me, the query is, could that be eventually damaging to them or their systems? Like when they take in so much of the human mess that eventually their processing is like, this is not worth sorting through. That's so interesting because the underlying thesis of all my work is that we're doing this to improve human-to-human empathy and human-to-machine empathy. And so at the core of all of this is this concept of we need more empathy in this world. And I think that that should be our focus. If we focus on that, we will end in a good state. Like we will focus on all the applications and use cases and renditions of this technology where it brings us all together. That's all for this episode, which has given us plenty to think about and feel about when it comes to AI. On the one hand, it's valid to fear a man-made creation that has all the same emotions that we have, because emotions are what make organic beings unique and special. On the other hand, perhaps witnessing how logical technology can understand the ups and downs of human emotion we'll kind of be forced to consider our own emotional intelligence. And maybe emotion AI isn't a threat, but a mirror. Either way, as the show continues and we learn more about the dark corners of the robot heart, you should keep tuning into our show, where I will continue to have experts giving us the inside scoop on the science, technology, and history that has inspired Raised by Wolves. I want to thank Aaron Guzikowski for stopping by and hanging out with me once again. And I want to thank Rana Alkalyubi for explaining to us how the steps her company is taking will hopefully build a more empathetic future. You can buy her new memoir, Girl Decoded, A Scientist's Quest to Reclaim Our Humanity by Bringing Emotional Intelligence to Technology, anywhere books are sold. Raised by Wolves, the podcast is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Holly Fry. 
The podcast is produced by Ethan Fixell, written and researched by Chris Crovaton, and engineered, edited, and mixed by James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Raised by Wolves, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max, with new episodes available to stream on Thursdays. 